0: Talking history. This is
1: news talk.
0: We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender.
1: And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The
0: strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant
2: leap for mankind. Augusto, Argus, Akoya.
3: Good evening and welcome. We're Talking History on News Talk 106-108 with me, Patrick Eagan. In tonight's show, we're looking at FDR and the New Deal, as we debate the election of Franklin Delano Roosevelt in November 1932 and his attempts to tackle the Great Depression. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Last week we looked at the music and legacy. Of a band who changed popular culture forever as we discuss the history of the Beatles. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the News Talk app powered by Go Loud, our website, Newstalk.com, or wherever you
0: download your podcasts. You Franklin Delano Roosevelt, you solemnly swear that you will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will. To the best of your ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help you God. I, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God.
3: Tonight's show is on FDR and the New Deal. On the 4th of March 1933, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was inaugurated the 32nd President of the United States in the middle of some of the darkest days of the Depression. Promising that the only thing people needed to fear was fear itself, FDR set out about restoring confidence with an energetic first 100 days in office and his programme of policies, The New Deal.
0: Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. In every dark hour of our national life, a leadership of frankness and of vigor has met with that understanding and support of the people themselves, which is essential to victory. And I am convinced that you will again give that support to leadership in these critical days.
3: In tonight's show, we want to reassess the rise to power of FDR, how he won the 1932 election against Herbert Hoover and re examine the New Deal and its legacy. And to help me do this, I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Professor Yoon Morgan is Emeritus Professor of United States History at the Institute of the Americas, University College London, an expert on modern American politics. His books include FDR, Transforming the Presidency and Renewing America. Professor Bernadette Whelan is Professor Emeritus in the Department of History at the University of Limerick. She has published extensively on American-Irish diplomatic relations, including the book De Valera and Roosevelt, Irish and American Diplomacy in Times of Crisis. And her new book, Irish First Ladies and First Gentlemen, 1919-2011, to will be published next month. Professor Michael Cullinan is the Loman Walton Chair of Theodore Roosevelt Studies at Dickinson State University and Public Historian for the Theodore Roosevelt Association, and is His books include Remembering Theodore Roosevelt. Well, you're all very welcome. And later in the show, I'll be talking to Jonathan Jarman, a journalist and author and the former political correspondent for Newsweek magazine. And his latest book is Becoming FDR, The Personal Crisis That Made a President, about the years of personal struggle that remade Roosevelt's character. You are all very welcome. And Michael, I might begin with you and a question about Theodore Roosevelt and Franklin's Eleanor Roosevelt. What is the exact relationship? They're fifth cousins, is that it?
4: They are fifth cousins and they're close in a number of other ways. Uh, FDR was really inspired by Theodore Roosevelt. So Theodore Roosevelt was president when Franklin gets married to Eleanor Roosevelt. And Eleanor Roosevelt is Theodore's niece, so his brother's daughter, In fact, uh, Theodore Roosevelt would give Eleanor away at the wedding of Franklin and Eleanor, and he was a major influence as president on a young Franklin Roosevelt. And of course, when Franklin Roosevelt goes on to run for vice president in 1920, his uh, his cousin, his more famous cousin Theodore, had had just passed away, and he kind of takes up the mantle of the Roosevelt name from you know the 20s, the 30s, and then of course the 40s. So, uh, but intellectually, ideologically, Theodore Roosevelt is very much an influence on young
3: Franklin Roosevelt. So, you talk to me about the 1920s then, because as, as Michael mentioned there, he was the vice presidential candidate in the 1920 election. James Cox loses that election to Warren Harding, the Republican candidate. And the Democrats are kind of in the wilderness then in the 1920s. But of course, FDR also contracts polio in that decade as well. So it really is a difficult decade, both politically and personally.
1: Yes, um, it was a disastrous year for the Democrats in 1920. Though Roosevelt, FDR, acquitted himself well in the campaign and was considered the coming man in the party, but then uh, in the summer of 1921, disaster strikes. He gets polio, and uh, from uh, for the next six years, he is really out of things as he tries various cures, uh, physical cures to regain the use of his paralyzed legs. He's paralyzed from the waist down. Now, he's out of action politically in the 1920s. And this is a disastrous decade for the Democrats. And the party is divided between its uh, dry wing and wet wing over prohibition its rural uh, base of support and its urban base of support, its uh, fundamentalist Protestant uh, base, and its emergent Catholic and ethnic base. So FDR is out of uh, the, um, although he he does engage, he he speaks at the 1924 National Convention, but fundamentally he's out of it and he's not part of this internecine strife. Uh, his plan was always to run for president in 1936 because Herbert Hoover was elected president in 1928 at the height of the prosperity of the 1920s and no one anticipated what was going to come. They thought Hoover was a shoe in for two terms he yeah, was looking for 1936. But he's virtually dragooned into running for New York governor in 1928 healthy the Democratic presidential ticket. And in a, another very, very bad year for the Democrats, he carries New York by the slimmest of margins. And once you're governor of New York, you are in an excellent position. It's the biggest state in the union at that time. You're in a, an excellent position to project yourself for a leadership bid. And then comes the uh, Wall Street crash, uh, the great contraction or the Great Depression of 1929 to 1933, and Herbert Hoover, the apostle of prosperity, is really, it's quite clear that Herbert Hoover isn't going to be re-elected, and FDR uh, comes out of the pack of Democrats to win the nomination and to go on to win the election in a landslide in 1932.
3: And Bernadette, it is fascinating to look at that 1932 election and see and try and see how much of it is it a vote for FDR and how much is it a vote against Herbert Hoover?
2: Yes, and I think that's, that's often a problem um, during elections, irrespective of where they are, particularly if the economy is going so badly as it was uh, by then. Um, and, you know, you, you can ask the question, what impact the depression have on the election of 32? and 1932 was the worst year of the Depression, and then coincidentally an election year. So um, he, I think as as Ian just indicated there, he hadn't intended running for uh, for until the next cycle, um, and it came around earlier. Now he had also uh, reinforced I think his credentials uh, as Governor of New York, uh, because although he didn't have that much, that many resources, or obviously national authority, it's at state level, um, he was able to introduce a couple of programs that did seem to assist those who were really suffering during the depression. Now, they weren't terribly successful, they weren't terribly extensive, um, but at the same time, he had shown um, some leadership, which was lacking, obviously, at the uh, presidential, at the national level. Um, So he came around at a good time, uh, and his time came around, um, it was very opportune, and really there was, you know, he won, as we've just said, in a landslide. Um, And you look at the election results and you look at a map and you just see a complete landslide. And of course, the Democrats also want control of both houses of Congress, which we've seen in so many American elections since and even today is vital for any president who wants to. Uh, Implement his
3: policies. And Yoon, when he accepted the nomination in the summer of 1932 for the Democratic Party, uh, FDR said that he, I, I pledge you, I pledge myself to a New Deal for the American people, and that captured the imagination. It became the, the, the brand name, the label for this program of policies. But did he ever actually kind of set out what the New Deal was, apart from the fact that it was going to restore confidence and faith in the economic system?
1: Well, um, the short answer to that is not in any detail. There are some historians who believe that uh, he was really making it up as he went along, uh, that there was no blueprint. Uh, uh, I happen to believe, and this I think is becoming a more conventional viewpoint now, that uh, there was greater understanding in the Roosevelt camp about what they wanted to do. Uh, Quite clearly, if Anybody uh, trying uh, to make up their mind about voting for Hoover or for Roosevelt in 1932 knew what they were going to get. They might have been voting against Hoover, but Hoover stood for a minimalist federal government. FDR uh, did enough in the campaign uh, to show that he believed in an activist federal government. And... um, uh he uh, he writes or more accurately he puts his name to an article that appears in a very popular journal shortly after the election and if you read that article it spells out much of what the new deal did uh, so uh, he wasn't he wasn't how can i put this uh, sailing into the blue without uh, a compass uh, uh he had some broad idea And uh, uh, he was willing to experiment. If something didn't work, he was willing to uh, uh, try something new. But I think we have to understand, too, that Roosevelt wanted reform as well as recovery. Uh, He wasn't interested in going back to the kind of America that existed in the 1920s, as he saw it, a very unequal society, Um, distribution of income was heavily skewed towards the top and uh, no rights for underprivileged groups. And it's quite clear that he wants uh, to uh, to, uh, institute reforms um, to help those in the bottom half of the income distribution. And sometimes those reforms uh, actually go against the grain of recovery. I'll give you an example, in 1935 he instituted social Security, uh, the Social Security Old Age Pension and Unemployment Insurance program, and that's a contributory program where workers pay into the system out of their wage packets, and that uh, social Security tax starts to be collected in 1937 and sucks purchasing power out of the economy just at the moment when uh, the recovery of the first term is running out of steam and it's instrumental in bringing about a new recession within a Depression in 1937. If there's one word which sums up what FDR was after, it was security. Uh, security uh, for families, uh, for individuals, who uh, really needed the help of the state to get by. And uh, that is the light motive of the New Deal as it goes forward. And Bernadette, how
3: difficult was it for people during the, the Great Depression in the United States? Because some political commentators were thinking that democracy itself was going to be under threat, that the constitution might have to be put on the shelf for the duration of the crisis. And it very much seemed like it was something that could destabilise completely the entire country. Yes,
2: you're absolutely right. And the, the difficulties, I think, in particular were evident in the um, bonus march um, in 1932. Um, as we know, in, in 24, the US government had awarded World War I veterans a bonus. And in 32, um, you know, it hadn't been paid. And they demanded about 10,000 unemployed World War I veterans. They marched um, on Washington and insisted that they would be paid. Um, and there's these wonderful images of the bonus marches which are useful for anybody teaching... Um, the, the boners, even, the, 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 the protesters even, they built their shanty towns, which they called Hooverville. And uh, because Congress had refused to pay the bonus. But Hoover reacts by um, calling in General um, MacArthur, who used tanks and tear gas to drive the veterans and their families out of Washington. And I think not only, obviously, did it increase Hoover's unpopularity, but it also showed in a way that how democracy was so fragile um, in America and indeed, was 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 under under threat, and um, because of the depth of the um, circumstances of people, the poverty, um, uh, the deprivation, etc. And in a way, it illustrated for so many the gap between uh, those in power, Hoover, um, and as um, Ewan was just saying, his minimalist approach and the reality on the ground, the daily life for people. So yes, um, democracy was under threat for so many, and. It, It it was viewed that way and which, of course, accounts also for that major landslide, because um, not only was was, um, Roosevelt going to bring in, hopefully, some greater government intervention, but he was also bringing hope to people uh, that things would improve.
3: And Michael it's fascinating we of course had the benefit of hindsight and we know just exactly uh, what FDR did in office and this uh, unprecedented unique four times elected to the presidency and and all of that but back in 1932 when he was elected for the first time people didn't know how it would turn out and I'm I'm always intrigued and fascinated to see the number of people and the number of commentators who didn't have a high regard for FDR. They didn't think he was particularly clever. They didn't think that he was uh, particularly uh, shrewd on economic policy, that he was called uh, the best of the second raters. Herbert Hoover uh, thought that uh, he knew nothing about economics when he met him before the inauguration and that he had to educate uh, a polite, well-meaning young man. And there was a lot of people who really underestimated F. FDR.
4: Absolutely. And Herbert Hoover is the complete opposite. I mean, he's a great humanitarian. He's a, he's a business person of, of high esteem. And yet he fails completely to stave off economic depression worldwide. So I don't think that impression of FDR is fair. And obviously, over time, the American public and commentators take a much different approach. But certainly at the outset, he's seen as a, a man with a silver spoon in his mouth. He comes from a wealthy family in upstate New York. And he hasn't had to work very hard. He's called by the banking people, uh, his, his friends from Harvard, a traitor to his class, because uh, he, he institutes policies that, um, that that don't seem to enrich the wealthy, but rather you know try to give a, a, a fair deal to Americans. I wanted to just go back to Ewan's point about how much of the New Deal itself was planned, because I think he's spot on about the changing view of the New Deal as being something that had more of a, a sense of where it was going than initially thought. And I, I actually see FDR's New Deal as part of a continuum of American politics rather than a major radical break from it. And what I mean by that is that things like Social Security, the ideas of the so-called brain trust, the people that surrounded FDR and came up with many of the New Deal policies, those people had been working in politics before coming to the administration. And I'm talking about people like Adolph Bailey or Rex Tugwell. Harold Ickes. These people actually cut their teeth in the progressive movement of the 1912 campaign, which, of course, was led by his cousin Theodore Roosevelt. And, and, and those people were talking about Social Security before FDR comes to the White House. And they, they are really the architects of the New Deal. And again, there's, there's a kind of um, a linguistic continuum here, too, right? There's the Square Deal of Theodore Roosevelt's age, the New Deal of FDRs, the fair deal of Harry Truman and then later the great society. We could even talk about maybe Barack Obama and how Barack Obama tries to invoke both Roosevelt in order to push for affordable health care in America. I think there's a real stretch from all the way back in the 1910s right through to the, the early 2000s.
3: And Michael, FDR seemed to be this great communicator. He was able to use the radio to, to speak directly to the American people through these fireside chats.
0: You people must have faith. You must not be stampeded by rumors or guesses. Let us unite in banishing fear. We have provided the machinery to restore our financial system, and it is up to you to support and make it work. It is your problem, my friends. Your problem no less than it is mine. Together, we cannot fail
3: but he also seems to be someone who was relaxed about politics. He didn't look stressed like Herbert Hoover. He didn't seem broken by the crisis. He looked like he very much enjoyed politics. He enjoyed being president and nothing was going to faze him.
4: He did, and he's got this sort of charisma. You know, he famously, when he meets dignitaries from around the world, I think his foreign policy is really uh, good to look at in, in this case. You know, he, he serves cocktails and hot dogs to the king when, when the king visits the United States. He, he meets... Uh, Churchill meets him completely undressed, and uh, Franklin Roosevelt barely bats an eye and just starts talking about foreign relations. He had this manner about him that was sort of, you know, very warm and affectionate to those that he met. Um, his his cousins used to come and visit him in the White House, and he would talk about matters of state uh, with them freely. Um, and and of course, his wife Eleanor would say, "You can't talk about these things, Franklin." And Franklin would just kind of continue to talk. It was like Other presidents we think of maybe like Bill Clinton, who has this sort of indomitable spirit and and willingness to engage with people on their level about the things that interest them. FDR had that very much as well. And I think that's one of the things that uh, led to his four successive election victories.
3: And you now, whenever someone is elected or whenever someone becomes prime minister or Taoiseach or whatever, they talk about the first 100 days and what they're going to uh, try and achieve. But of course, that all goes back to FDR and this. This extraordinary first 100 days and this extraordinary amount of activity.
1: Absolutely. Uh, it's an impossible bar for anyone else to follow. Uh, uh, FDR uh, collaborates with Congress. I've got to say that uh, much of the legislation of the first 100 days uh, wasn't the FDR's own creation. Uh, it was partly the creation of cabinet officers, uh, partly the creation of... Uh, Uh, congressional Democrats who had been calling for activism during the Hoover period. But uh, suddenly there are 16 major pieces of legislation enacted. Uh, It's an incredible 100-day period. There'd be nothing like it. And, of course, uh, the first thing that FDR has to do is to uh, stabilise the collapsing banking system. It's difficult for us to... Realize now how frightened Americans were in March of 1933. Most of the um, banks of the country had closed their doors because uh, uh, there were depositor runs, people were trying to get their money out, putting it underneath their beds, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the first thing that uh, uh, FDR had to do was restore confidence in the banking system. And one of the first things he does is to take America off the gold standard. Now, at risk of uh, simplifying a very complex problem, uh, the gold standard operated in a way that was the basis of your international economic uh, dealings. And uh, if uh, gold was leaving the country, uh, foreigners taking gold out of the United States, and you had to Uh, jack up interest rates and do anything to bring it back in. It was deflationary at a time when uh, the economy needed to be inflated. And FDR and his advisors realized this. In March 1933, there's a series of uh, initiatives which take the United States off the gold standard. Uh, The uh, dollar value of, of gold is adjusted in a way that helps prices to go up, takes quite a while i have to say but that was essential for recovery uh, my, uh, some of the key issues of the first of the first 100 days were to do with putting the uh, financial system on a stable foundation
3: and Bernadette, we're talking about the inauguration of FDR in March 1933. And of course, we're so used to presidents being inaugurated in January. And FDR was the last president to be inaugurated in March because the 20th Amendment then changed it to January uh, in 1933. And it is strange, isn't it, that when you're in the middle of a crisis, a new president has been elected in November, but you had to wait all of these months before they actually took over.
2: Yeah, Indeed. Um, just to come back on one point you mentioned there, I think we in Ireland would be a little bit familiar of uh, co- uh, concerns about banks not too long ago. We spent, I think, between a Sunday and a Monday night being worried whether we would be able to get access to money there not too long ago. So I think there'd be a little bit of familiarity with that here in Ireland. But yes, I mean, and the, one of the first announcements by the incoming administration and the president's elect office, uh, between November 32 and March 33 was that they wouldn't be making any foreign policy decisions, for example, uh, and that they'd be holding, holding back. So there is this interregnum there. And, of course, the problem then also is what does the incumbent president do for that period of time? Because they were also, in term, foreign policy terms, in the middle of organising um, a major conference on war deaths and also on disarmament. Um, And, uh, you know, a lot of that then had to be held up until um, he came into into office. And meanwhile, as well, for those on the ground, and we've heard already there about the banking uh, issues that were central to the whole problems. But for those farmers and for those uh, industrial workers, those who are unemployed, there's that gap as well, um, and which just exaggerated their difficulties in, in that period so it's not too surprising that one of the first things that happened is to is to remove that fear to shorten it at least i should say um and uh, to have the president and his team be able to uh, start work immediately.
3: And Bernadette, the other thing is that we're talking about the New Deal and as if almost, you know, everyone thought, oh, this is a great idea, he's doing a great Mm -hmm. job. It was hugely controversial. And there were so many people who thought this was socialism or communism. I think William Randolph first referred to him as Stalin's Eleanor Roosevelt, that there were a lot of people who hated what FDR was doing.
2: Indeed, and um, particularly in that first term, Um, When, as we've heard, the legislative activity uh, is so, um, uh, there's so much, so much is happening and uh, around his attempts to uh, introduce his three R's, his recovery, relief and reform uh, programme. And so, yes, as you said, you had socialist, extreme liberals and he's criticized for providing too much assistance for business, too little for the unemployed, the minorities, women and the elderly. You had conservative critics then were of course angered by increased regulation of business uh, and that was particularly in the second new deals uh, pro-union stance Um, the deficit spending again annoyed a lot so that you had some conservative democrats beginning to join the republicans from 34 on to form what was called an anti-new deal organization called the american liberty league now it didn't get very far but at the same time it does show that there was opposite the opposition within his own party uh, is, is present, although that coalition that he formed, particularly uh, around himself, of, you know, solid South, white ethnic groups in urban areas, Midwest farmers, the labour unions and the African-Americans, they become the backbone of the Democratic Party, um, which many would suggest is a coalition that continues through to the 1960s. But it does fracture. You can't see a fracturing of that absolute, you know, that, that solid support that he had in the earlier period because of those Um, hugely interventionist and the increasing reach of of the federal government. There were the other demagogues then, of course, who were opposed to him. Um, That Irish-Canadian priest, Father Charles Coughlin, um, or maybe he's called Colin over there. Um, And his attacks on the New Deal become increasingly um, strong. And he has a major access to a huge audience through his weekly radio addresses. But of course, as he becomes, his rhetoric becomes more anti-Semitic and fascist. The Catholic Church closed down his uh, radio broadcast. Uh, there were others as well who opposed him, individuals such as Francis Townsend, who was a proponent of the old age pension, as we've just been hearing about from an early stage. Um, and he was popular before the Social Security Act um, was, was put in place, uh, which was, again abides with what Ewan was saying. Um, Kingfish Huey Long, Governor, Senator of Louisiana, He had a planned end of the Depression which was to promote shared wealth um, which was really quite unbelievably ridiculous and of course that that got nowhere. But he did challenge FDR for the democratic assassination uh, for the democratic nomination in 35 but he was then killed by an assassin so he was out of the picture. So there were those who opposed hugely um, those radical parts of the New Deal and those underlying principles of state intervention and indeed just as um, FDR was described as, by many years as a communist. Um, you also had de Valera in Ireland, uh, who greatly admired the New Deal, being described in such terms by some opponents as well for a period of time.
3: Michael, how successful was the New Deal? Because you had a whole raft of policies and all these alphabet soup agencies being created and trying to get people back to work. But it seems like some elements worked, some didn't. There was still high unemployment at the end of the decade. So it definitely seems like some parts worked better than others.
4: I think that's right. Yeah, some do work better than others. I mean, you can take Things like FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Company, which we still have today, which is effectively the insurance on banking deposits. You can think about the Tennessee Valley Authority, which creates a public utility in the Tennessee Valley that is still around today and is kind of the blueprint for public-private partnerships in major uh, engineering construction works. And then there's other um, parts that that kind of failed, but failed successfully. So I'm thinking here of the. National Recovery Administration, or the NRA, not to be confused with the National Rifle Association, of course, uh, but the National Recovery Administration was a- an agency that Roosevelt created in order to have business, uh, the unions, and the government working together in a kind of corporation that set standards for fair practice. It also set prices in some cases as well. And although the NRA would only last a couple of years, it and it was basically deemed unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, many of the standards of those, age, uh, of those various industries that took part in the NRA have since become the standard practices for those industries to this day. And then, and then there's other uh, things that um, I think were hugely successful. My grandfather was in the Civilian Conservation Corps. Uh, that was a huge success, not only for unemployed young men, but for conservation measures. I mean, we often forget that Franklin Roosevelt was one of our most important um, presidential conservationists, along with his cousin, of course, and maybe even with Richard Nixon. But um, so those are the successes. I think there's 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 other failures as well. Some of the economic policies don't last, and they come over as Dr. Whelan said, they come under great scrutiny in years to come, uh, especially in the later the later two terms of uh, Roosevelt's presidency. The Republicans really take aim at entitlements, uh, at the Second New Deal, which has less success particularly around the Banking Act uh, and uh, around the, the National Labor Relations Act, better known as the Wagner Act, um, th- these are less successful, and I think they become the basis for Republican opposition in the, the late 40s and 1950s.
3: Okay, well, tonight we are talking about FDR and the New Deal. We're going to take a quick break now, but when we come back, I'll be talking to Jonathan Darman about the years of personal struggle that remade Roosevelt's character and his leadership as president. So stay with us here on News Talk. Welcome back. We're talking history and tonight we are looking at the history of FDR and the New Deal. And I'm delighted to be joined now by Jonathan Darman, who's a journalist, and author and a former political correspondent for Newsweek. His latest book is Becoming FDR, the personal crisis that made a president. And it covers the years of personal struggle that remade Roosevelt's character. Jonathan, you're very welcome to the show.
5: Thanks so much for having me. It's a
3: fascinating dimension to the life and story of FDR, the way it I suppose his life was turned upside down in the 1920s. So what exactly happened?
5: So I think a lot of people don't realize that Franklin Roosevelt had a whole career in public life before he got polio at the age of 39. He had actually been the Democratic candidate for vice president in 1920. And his whole persona in politics up to that point had been based very much around His physical presence. He was a tall guy. He was a handsome guy. He was an athletic guy. And he really used his person, his physical presence to his advantage. He got on that 1920 ticket in part because of the Democratic nominating convention that year. He made such an impression on the room, jumping over rows of chairs, starting fights, stealing signs. And people thought, oh, there's a young Roosevelt in a hurry. That's the kind of person we want on our ticket. So then the next year, in 1921, he was on vacation with his family um, at their summer cottage on Campobello Island, which is a Canadian island off of the coast of Maine. And one night in August, he took very, very ill quite suddenly. Um, he went to bed complaining of a fever and a stiffness in his back. He woke up the next morning, and he had essentially lost the ability to control his, much of his body uh, within 72 hours of that, he would lose the ability to walk completely and he would never get it back again. He went through there on that island, which was quite remote. There was there was no phone line. Uh, the house he was in was quite was only gaslit. There was only one doctor who serviced the island, and he he arrived by boat from a nearby town on the main coast. FDR went through this horrible ordeal there that for about two and a half weeks, where he was gravely ill and no one knew exactly. What had happened to him. Um, and finally, at, at, at the end of August, uh, they got the proper medical attention and he was diagnosed with what was called at the time infantile paralysis or polio, which was in 1921 about as terrifying a diagnosis as you could get because there had been these horrible epidemics in American cities that had uh, killed thousands of people, many of them children. So when FDR got that diagnosis late in that summer of 1921, I think he understood right away uh, that his, the course of his life had been perhaps irrevocably changed.
3: And I think up until then, a lot of people saw him as a somewhat shallow figure. He lacked empathy. And in the way that he overcame this challenge and the way he learned to, to deal with, with his polio, I think it transformed his character as well.
5: I think that's that's so key to understanding FDR and understanding his presidency. Before he had polio, I think he had this sort of idea that he could do good in the world, but that first he had to become great. And so a lot of it was very sort of inward focused. He was trying to sort of advance his own career. I think polio is the first time in his life, really, that circumstances awaken him to what suffering is like for the sufferer. Um, And I saw this in my research in in some really interesting ways. One of them was by looking at the correspondence that FDR had with other polio patients, um, starting from the first days after his diagnosis was announced to the public in the fall of 1921. Again, because he'd been a public figure When it gets announced that he had had infantile paralysis, it was a big story. And a lot of people started writing him letters, um, you know, people who had had polio or who had family members who had polio. um, And some of them were sort of asking for advice on what he had done to seek treatment, but others were offering it. And I was particularly struck by one letter he received from a gentleman who came from a totally different background from him, someone who'd been a railroad worker in Massachusetts. Uh, This person described um, spending seven years in a hospital um, recovering from the effects of polio and still was completely paralyzed. And in his letter to Roosevelt, he talked about how rage and shame had impeded his recovery. And in that letter, he said, Mr. Roosevelt, whatever you do, don't worry, it won't help any. And so when you consider this incredible capacity for empathy that exists in Franklin Roosevelt. I sort of look to that moment as the beginning of it, because I think there's a direct line from that idea. Mr. Roosevelt, whatever you do, don't help any to the only thing we have to fear is fear itself.
3: And it's funny you mentioned that line, because at the inauguration, I was looking at the footage of it. He does appear to be walking. And if you didn't really know how it, it was more perhaps using his upper
5: body strength, you would actually think that he did have the power in his legs. It's a really interesting, nuanced uh, topic because I think that's right. I think a lot of us who've who've learned the history of, of FDR and the Depression era think that his disability was this sort of carefully choreographed secret that was kept from the public. And they did do a lot of things to make it look like he was more physically mobile than he was. Whenever he appeared in public, he would be wearing steel braces on his legs he would be sort of fully supported uh, by someone else who was who was holding him up, and he would have crutches that he would use to balance himself on. Um, but at the same time, one of the things that was really interesting to me in researching this time period was coming to understand that FDRs, uh, the fact that he'd had, had polio, and uh, the, the fact of his disability were not a complete secret from the public. If you were reading newspapers in the 1920s and early 1930s, you knew that FDR had had polio and you knew that he hadn't fully regained the ability to walk. And it was actually a part of his sort of political persona that he sold to the country that he'd had this amazing comeback story. And I actually think that's quite important when we try and understand what the genesis of this incredible relationship that Franklin Roosevelt had with the American public. People knew when he talked about hope and about overcoming fear that this is someone who knew whereof he spoke. He had been through this himself.
3: Well, Jonathan, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you tonight. Jonathan Darman, the author of Becoming FDR, The Personal Crisis That Made a President. We'll take another quick break now. And when we come back, we'll be talking about the second New Deal and the impact and legacy of FDR. So stay with us here. On News Talk. Welcome back. We're talking history and we are talking tonight about FDR and the New Deal. Yoon, can we talk about the second New Deal then from nineteen thirty-five on? Because you'd mentioned about the first one was about relief, then he also was interested in reform. What were the significant reforms that FDR was trying to bring forward?
1: Well, the first new deal largely aims to provide security for people who have something to lose. Uh, uh, People with money in banks, bank depositors, industrialists, bankers, uh, uh, farm owners, uh, but not farm tenants. And then in the second new deal, which conventionally dated 1935 to 1938, he shifts emphasis to uh, provide security for the have-nots. And the um, labor legislation, the Wagner Act, is very important in this regard, although it's very controversial because you, it leads to a number of strikes as, uh, as the unions struggle for recognition with the uh, big corporations. Uh, probably the most significant uh, social welfare initiative in American history, the Social Security Act of uh, uh, 1935. Um, uh, create contributory pensions and contributory unemployment insurance. But he can't go very far because uh, he begins to lose the support of conservative Democrats in Congress. There's a lot of stuff that he hopes to get to, but he doesn't. And uh, the last great reform of the New Deal was a law, uh, the Fair Fair Labour Standards Act of 1938. And that is gutted by Southern Democrats. Uh, who want uh, to keep cheap labor uh, in their region for competitive advantage uh, because companies will begin to relocate there, they mm-hmm. believe, uh, looking for inexpensive labor. But there's a very important thing that happens as well. In 1937, FDR moves prematurely to balance budget. And as a consequence in conjunction with uh, other factors, which I won't go into here. But what it does is premature, and it halts the recovery. Uh, The economy needs fiscal stimulus, and suddenly we are into a new recession. The uh, promising recovery of the first term is stopped in its tracks. And it's at this juncture that FDR begins to move uh, to get out of the recession in 1938 to institute of Keynesian economics. It's still pretty timid Keynesian economics, but uh, now uh, what we have is the adoption of a deliberate economic strategy use deficit budgets to compensate for the decline of the private economy. The impact of these, of deficit spending doesn't become apparent until World War Two, And suddenly you have massive government spending during the war, deficits that you could never have imagined uh, 10 years earlier. And of course, what happens is a wartime boom. And from that point on, what you have in the United States is the recognition that the state must be an actor in stabilising the economy, using deficit spending to counter recessions, preventing them to uh, to slip into uh, depressions, but also the reverse Uh, tightening uh, economic policy when inflation threatens. threatened. But I would like to point out one thing which is often overlooked in the record of the New Deal. Yes, there was this recession in 1937, and the first half of 1938. But overall, in the first term, the economy uh, grows by 8% a year. And in 1939-40, it grows by another 8% a year. Now, that, those are remarkable economic statistics. Uh, we'd kill for them today, wouldn't we? Uh, but uh, the depression is so deep, the loss of wealth has been so great, and business confidence is so fragile, that even that does not do enough to drag America out of the Great Depression. It's only with the coming of the war and the armament economy. Uh, that emerges uh, in 1941 42 that full employment is restored in the United States and full recovery.
3: And Bernadette, before all of that, uh, FDR has to seek re election in 1936 and he's up against Alfred Landon for the Republicans. And I wonder how, to what extent was that election a referendum on the New Deal?
2: Yeah, indeed. I think the, he certainly saw his, what was still a fairly substantial victory in 1936. As permission to continue with his with his policies, and of course, it also brought forward one of the major controversies around his whole tenure, which was the Supreme Court packing, um, and that he saw it also as a permission to remove the court as an obstacle to um, the plans of, of any president. Um, there's loads of issues around it, whether it was a, a, dem- a move by a, a genuine move by a genuine dem- Democrat. Uh, nevertheless, um, he had encountered a lot of opposition from the Supreme Court, um, which had a conservative majority, and its rulings had frustrated his his programs. So he had attempted to appoint uh, pro-New Deal justices there during his first term and had failed. Uh, and then he, in that as a consequence of that election, um, uh, he sought as permission, as I say, to to to, to change um, to continue uh, with his policies. And to try and dilute the power of the of the Supreme Court by adding um, new justices for those who were over a certain age, um, so of course there was huge opposition to the court' reorganization, and even though the Congress rejected the plan, the aftermath of the court packing was that the Supreme Court became more supportive of his plan, um, uh, particularly because as we've just heard, the depression was was continuing, so the need for Um, that legislation to continue to flow through Congress um, was intense. He was fortunate, of course, then that certain justices later retired during his second term, allowing him to appoint a majority uh, on the court. So it certainly, the New Deal, certainly it did lose momentum, as we've just heard, um, after 36, 37, 38. Uh, He has to kind of pivot somewhat. Um, And then, of course, his his majority, his Democratic majority is also reduced in, in Congress. But by thirty-eight, thirty-nine, there were foreign policy issues.
3: Very interesting. And uh, Bernadette, even though this has been a show on FDR and the New Deal, I think it would be remiss if we didn't say something about his wife, the First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, who was a hugely significant social activist and reformer. And really, I think, played a very important and very active role during the 1930s, during that New Deal period.
2: Yeah, indeed. And I think one of the key things when you look at the, the, the whole history of American first ladies is how she shifted that role of the president's wife um, from being, um, you know, the, the, the sort of power behind the throne to becoming an equal partner. Um, and indeed, uh, she herself would talk about that, um, you know, while she gave an interview to Good Housekeeping in 1930, that she was a mother and wife, which would have been expected of her, of her first priorities. Um, but then that she also was a a full partner to her husband, full partnership and a companion. But of course she had her own interests. Now a lot of that was born out of her childhood, which was lonely. Uh, Her marriage was dominated the early years, at least, by her mother-in-law, was a very strong figure. She then discovers that her husband was having an affair with her secretary, Lucy Mercer, in 1918. And then of course that he um, contracts polio, as we've heard, in 1921, um, which she had to pivot again. So but what happens throughout, you can see when you look at, you know, it's easy in retrospect, but when you look back over her early years through, you can see that there's such a sense of confidence that grows in her over time. And she becomes hugely involved in social service work. Uh, she joined the Junior League and she begins teaching in, in a settlement house in, in New York. Then there's a sense that you get through from her life of the importance of political participation and of women's political participation. So by the time the New Deal comes along, she's very much, um, she has um, an identity that is is separate from from her own husband. And among her own, now she said that when she came in that one of the things that she wanted was not to be known as, uh, and she she was not to be, um, people were not to expect a a symbol of elegance but a plain ordinary, Mrs. Roosevelt. But she proved herself to be an extraordinary First Lady. She held her own press conferences. She gave equal time to women who were traditionally barred from presidential press conferences. 1939, when the dawn of the American Revolution, which she was a a member of, coming from an elite family, they refused to allow Marian Anderson, an African-American singer, to perform in their auditorium. She resigned um, her membership from it. She travelled extensively then, of course, on behalf of her husband and her own and even though she said she was the president's eyes, ears and legs, um, she also developed her own interests and becomes, as I said, an advocate of uh, the rights and needs of the poor, of minorities, disadvantaged. And she also used the media in quite a, an innovative way, just as her husband did. She recounted in her daily syndicated column, My Day, um, the, her, her exploits and her adventures throughout um, on a daily basis. And that continued until her death in 62. Um, and she also served in various roles, um, during the, um, during the, uh, as assistant director of civil defence from 41 to 42 during the war. Um, perhaps, though, perhaps what she's better known uh, um, in terms of a legacy is that after his death, she removed herself from public life. But Truman appointed her to the UN General Assembly and she chaired the Human Rights Commission and worked tirelessly for the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was adopted, as you know, by the General Assembly in 48. So that in particular, I think, is a very strong legacy of that First Lady. You
3: know, a quite remarkable legacy indeed. And Michael, when we try and sum up the legacy then of FDR, what, the, what is the reason for him being considered such a great president? Is it, as we've been talking about, that leadership during the, the Depression, during the Second World War, the the charisma, the... The, the persuasive way he was able to, to restore confidence in, in the American system and in democracy. Uh, what was it that, that was so significant?
4: Well, I think it's all of those things that make him one of the greatest presidents. And I'm glad that you had mentioned the ranking. You know, there, was a, there was elements of that ranking, uh, you know, the, the president's moral authority, the president's vision, the domestic, the foreign policy. That's how the scholars judge a presidential administration and all of those things he gets high marks. Whether we're talking about the New Deal and domestic poli- politics as being a complete reformation of American democracy, or if we talk in terms of foreign policy about World War II and those two great crises, but also, President Roosevelt's vision for the United States is exceptional. I mean, it's not just a vision in which he's going to transform American democracy, he's going to win over the American public in a way that presidents of the 1920s hadn't. He's going to be also what was later called an imperial president. He's going to enhance the power of the presidency and make it an office that really can get involved in every aspect of, of American life. And on top of all that, I think his moral authority, which is another one of those, um, those characteristics that we talk about in, in, in ranking presidents, his moral, moral authority is quite high. I mean, the, uh, unlike nowadays where we know every scandalous element of, uh, of a president's life, Affairs of Lucy Mercer. I mean, those are not in the public eye. Even his uh, his disability is not really in the public eye. At a lot of public events, his son James is helping him to walk, and and the media doesn't report on it um, as extensively as as they might nowadays. Um, although I have to say Franklin Roosevelt is not afraid to talk about disability either. I mean, he had the the March of Dimes campaign that, that looks for a cure for polio and eventually succeeds. So, on all of these levels, I think he's he's not just um, the president during the Depression or the president during World War II, those are there, and those certainly make him one of the greatest. But on a number of levels, too, he really is a moral crusader and, and, and a reformer of American democracy, and, and that's why most historians give him high marks.
3: Well, I think that's a perfect note on which to end our discussion tonight. My thanks to my brilliant panel of experts, Professor Yoon Morgan of University College London, uh, Professor Bernadette Whelan of the University of Limerick, Professor Michael Cullinan of Dickinson State University, and earlier we also spoke to Jonathan Darman, the author of Becoming FDR. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, and Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join Join us then, we've been talking history. Good night.